Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is high. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. Watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at-bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field. It's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at-bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. SoCal's Country Station 95.1 K-Frog. I'm Pepper. This is Spirit of the IE. It's been 200 years since the poem The Night Before Christmas was published, but its authorship has been the subject of some dispute. Using research and writing skills refined during his tenure as a litigator, Tom German has just published The Fight for the Night, resolving the authorship dispute over The Night Before Christmas, which he hopes will put this debate to rest once and for all. He's on the line to tell us more. Thank you for joining me and Merry Christmas. Well, thank you for inviting me. And in the words of Clement Moore, Happy Christmas. Well, one of the... uh, strange word in the poem that people who say Clement Moore didn't write it focus on the fact that it says Happy Christmas rather than Merry Christmas. Well, this is the second book you've written. A couple years ago, you and I talked about your first book, Santa Claus Worldwide. How did these two books come about? Well, I started writing the first one, Santa Claus Worldwide, in about 2014. I had decided that I was going to retire early-ish from practicing law, and that what I wanted to do was sort of hone my hobby, which had been collecting Santa figurines, but I didn't have enough information about what was what, when it was made, what it was worth to make that a good hobby, so I decided to go looking for books that would tell me this, and I could not find any that were of any use, and I said, well, I'm just got to write my own. I can do that. I've written several law books, so I knew how to write a book and started researching. And I spent about four years researching. At the end of those four years, I had ended up with an introduction to the book that was supposedly a brief history of Santa Claus, and it turned out to be about 250 or 300 pages. And so we decided to acts the uh, part that was supposed to concern collecting figurines and just put out a, a straightforward history of how the figure we call Santa Claus developed. It's unusual, the book, in that it is sort of aimed for adults rather than children. It's not anything make-believe in it. What it is is it tells people this is how the make-believe part developed. This is how we get to these beliefs, not that they're true. So that came out in 2020. And as I was finishing it up, I came across this dispute between a professor in Vassar College in upstate New York and another professor in New Zealand. 
who claimed that the poem was really written by a fellow named Henry Livingston Jr. Henry Livingston lived in Poughkeepsie, New York, and he was a farmer. He really had a couple of side jobs he would do, but for all practical purposes, he was a farmer. And their claim was that his children had heard him recite the poem on Christmas morning in 1808. Now, the poem wasn't published until 1823, so that raises a few eyebrows how it could have been recited in 1808 in the first place. But nonetheless, that was their claim, and they based it largely on what they called witness letters. These were collected by a descendant of Henry Livingston in about 1917 through 1920s, so about a three-year period. He went to his various cousins and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and asked them to write what they remembered about the current. Some said they had no recollection at all. Some said they recalled certain things happening. And some said completely opposite things. For example, three of them said, well, they remembered the poem and the oldest son had a copy, but it got burnt in a house fire. But the descendants who wrote that gave three different years and three different locations for the house fire. And then, as it turned out, the poetry book that they said was burnt was discovered in one of the child's garages in a book and wasn't burned at all. So this was not a particularly credible claim, in my view, for authorship. But the college professors, I think, wanted to write something that would sell. And writing a book that says, gee whiz, what we've always believed about Clement Clark Moore writing The Night Before Christmas is true. No one's going to pay money for that. You've got to take a position that is contrary to conventional wisdom if you want to really interest people. And so that's what they did, in my view. It didn't really matter so much, is it right, but will it sell? So I spent the next four years after the first book came out researching what I just talked about, all of the witness letters, the poetry that had been written by Clement Clark Moore, and, and Henry Livingston was all available. And to the great credit of one of the uh, great, 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 great granddaughters of Henry Livingston, she compiled it all and put it on the web, made it very easy for people to read. Although she was a firm believer in the claim that her great, 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 great grandfather had written the poem. The reason... She believed her five great-grandfathers wrote it was essentially the same. They said he was, he meaning Clement Clark Moore, was too much of a curmudgeon, that he never wrote any happy poems. He wrote mean poems, and it couldn't have been him. That was what their claim amounted to. I read the poems myself, and I think a lot of people who have opined on 
authorship haven't really read the poems. Because if you read them, you cannot help but conclude that Henry Livingston's poems were as dark and dreary as anything, whereas Clement Moore's poetry, first of all, he had a lot more of it, but lots of it was poems for children and was uh, what I viewed as really well-done child's poetry, and that's exactly what The Night Before Christmas is. It's a poem intended for children on The Night Before Christmas. What do we know about Clement Moore and Henry Livingston Jr.? That's a good question. Clement Moore is an interesting character. His father was the Episcopal Bishop of New York and the president of Columbia College. It's a two pretty important posts in the early 1800s, and he held them both. He had one child, Clement, and he taught Clement at home for the first maybe 10 to 15 years of his life, and then he went to Columbia himself. He received a bachelor's degree, graduated first in his class, then he received a master's degree, Then he started writing sort of freelance, different uh, poems, different stories, and so on, and became very well-known. He also happened to be very wealthy because his parents and his wife's parents both owned substantial amounts of property on a little island called Manhattan. And it was not much use when they first inherited it. But as we all know, it became the most important city in the world. And Clement Moore became very wealthy. So he was wealthy. He was of, I'm going to call it noble heritage. His work after college was as a professor at what was called General Theological Seminary. This was the Episcopal Seminary in New York City. He actually contributed the land on which they built the seminary, and he was really respected throughout Manhattan. He was known as a admirable, happy, funny person, and nothing like the curmudgeon that the Livingston advocates have made about to be. Livingston, on the other hand, we don't know that much about. What we know is that he was a farmer primarily. He had two wives. The first one died after about 10 years of marriage. Two of the children died very young, as was uh, unfortunately common in, in those days. He then went 10 years unmarried, and then he got remarried and had eight more children. Again, a couple of whom died young, but he had a a, a pretty good-sized family in his second marriage. Now, did he write poetry? Well, yes, he wrote poetry, but first of all, it was not very good. And secondly, it was almost all written in that 10-year period where he was unmarried. And you can imagine his wife has died, two of his kids have died, he's living by himself, you know, uh, it really is a situation where you can just feel why he would feel the need to write poetry, and that's what he did. Now, if the poem was written in either 1808, as the Livingstons claim, or 1822, as everybody else believes, it doesn't make any sense that a guy who hadn't written anything for 33, 
33 years, 34 years would have been the author. But that's the argument that they're making. What do you view as the best evidence of authorship here? I think there's three or four different things that when you put them together, prove Clement Moore wrote the poem and disprove Henry Livingston wrote the poem. And they do so without getting into the weeds very much on whether it was happy poetry or or not. One is that Clement Moore claimed authorship in 1836. The poem was published anonymously. He did not choose to publish it. He just read it to his kids, and that's all he ever intended. But someone who was there when he read it on Christmas Eve in 1822 decided they wanted to take it to the local newspaper, the Troy Sentinel, and the Sentinel printed it. He was, for 15 years, reluctant to put his name on it, I think because it was taken largely from another poet's work, and he was concerned it could be a copyright violation because the other work had been copyrighted. But in any event, it wasn't until 1836 that he took credit. But after 1836, he consistently, for the rest of his life, until he was 83 years old, took credit for the poem. He published it in other venues, including a book of his own poetry. It was published under his name in many, many newspapers and magazines. And there's just a lot of evidence that he claimed it and he wrote it. There were people in Manhattan who were familiar with him because he was a very famous guy within the city who all believed that he wrote it. So there's a lot of evidence that he claimed it. On the other hand, and this is really important, Henry Livingston Jr. never, ever claimed to have written the poem. So all of his descendants are claiming he wrote a poem that he himself never said he wrote, and which his children, who he supposedly read it to uh, on Christmas morning in 1808, None of them ever publicly said that they heard their father read this poem. All of the, quote, evidence comes from things that were written over 100 years later by great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, and it's all what we lawyers call hearsay. My grandmother told me that her grandmother told her that our great-great grandfather wrote this poem. That's the evidence. And that is really not much uh, evidence to speak of. It wasn't until a century after they claim Livingston uh, wrote the poem that the Livingston descendants actually claimed authorship. Another factor that's really important is religion. Henry Livingston Jr. was Dutch reform. He also attended the Congregationalist church and the Presbyterian church because his first wife and his other relatives attended those churches. Those were all churches that prohibited the celebration of Christmas. These days, Christmas is viewed as an important Christian holiday, but when it was first introduced into Europe and America, it was actually disapproved by a large number of religions. But the Episcopal religion, which was what Clement Moore did, they promoted the celebration of Christmas in sort of traditional English style. We've all seen the 
English uh, Christmas parties with the boar's head and the wine and the fancy clothes. And that was what Clement Moore grew up with. So religion clearly marks Moore as the guy who's likely to write a poem about celebrating Christmas and Livingston as somebody who wouldn't be caught writing a poem about Christmas. There's also no evidence in any of the records that exist that his family celebrated Christmas. If you read all of the evidence, you have a guy who wrote a poem allegedly in 1808, and that was the only time he ever read the poem. And that was the only time that they did anything close to the celebration of Christmas. So in my mind, that pretty much refutes the claim. The other factor is that Clement Moore was accused, I'm going to say, in the two professors' books of being this curmudgeon who couldn't write a, a uh, child-friendly book. But if you read what was actually said about him by the people who were his contemporaries, the people he worked with, the people he went to church with, there are, I think it's about 20 quotations in my book from people about what a wonderful person he was. And they're consistent. They all say he was generous to a fault. He was big-hearted. He was devout religiously. He was funny in a uh, sort of proper and way. He wasn't outrageously crazy like Carrot Top or something like that. But he was reputed to be a very funny guy. And he's just the kind of guy you would think would write a poem like this. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLV.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Finally, you have the uh, issue, which I've already talked about a little bit, of when did Livingston write his poetry? And if, as the records show, he only wrote poetry for 10 years between roughly 1783 and 1793, it's hard to credit him with writing the world's most famous Christmas poem. It just doesn't work in my mind. Why was this an important topic for you to cover? That's a really good question, because I say in the book, and, and, and it's sort of obviously true, that the name on the book doesn't matter. Name on the poem, I should say. You could magically change the name on all the poems from Clement Moore to George Smith, and the poem would still be as popular. It's the content of the poem that is is important. The poem was important 
because it told Americans how to celebrate Christmas. It took it from a drunken sort of Mardi Gras style celebration the night before Christmas to a morning family friendly celebration where the kids would get up and Santa would have left the uh, presents under the tree for them. There was no Santa Claus until Clement Moore and another author who'd written just two years before Clement Moore. Until they wrote about Santa Claus, there was no Santa Claus in the United States. And they created this story that took hold and people loved it. And it made Celebration of Christmas a warm, sort of friendly, child-friendly celebration instead of the drunken party in the streets that it had been before this. And was there anything that surprised you when researching this topic? Yeah, there were a lot of things that surprised me. One was that there really wasn't a Santa until a printer named William Gilly, to give him credit, wrote a book called The Children's Friend that introduced Santa Claus and used his name. And then two years later, Clement Moore took that book and rewrote it to make it friendly and happy. But until those two things had occurred, there really wasn't any Santa Claus in America or any gift giver at all. And that surprised me. I think most people thought that Santa Claus has been around and St. Nicholas has been around for centuries, but it's really in the U.S. a fairly short period of time prior to in the 1800s, and he became a important symbol of the holiday. Coincidentally, he became widely known at the same time that drawings of Santa became widely known through artists like Thomas Nast, who created these figures that people loved, and they started printing them on the front cover of the the large illustrated newspapers. And that was sort of a virtuous cycle, as they say, meaning that the more times they put the poem on the, the front of the magazines, the more people liked Santa Claus, and the more times they put more people liked the poem. But they grew up together over decades, and by the 1900s were just well-established in American folklore is really the right word, but in American practices for the holiday. I've been speaking with Tom German, author of The Fight for the Night, Resolving the Authorship Dispute Over the Night Before Christmas. How would you like us to get your book? Well, it can be purchased by several bookstores that the, I'm not sure what you call Amazon. It's not really a store, but it sells books. Barnesandnoble.com is the same thing. There are three versions of the book. There's a, a an e-book, a soft-bound book, and a hard-bound book, and they're all available from those sources. Just go on your computer and you can order it. And do you believe in Santa Claus? I believe in Santa Claus. I say in Santa Claus Worldwide that what you need to understand is that Santa Claus is a symbol. He is a symbol of the celebration of Christmas. He is a symbol of the good-hearted feelings we have at Christmas time. And symbols are real. The American flag is a symbol, but it really exists. 
And in that way, Santa Claus really exists too, but as a symbol of the holidays. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. You know, I used to live in uh, Southern California and it takes some getting used to to have uh, Christmas with 90 degree or 85 <laughs> degree heat, but we accomplished it, and I assume you are as well. Instead of Christmas trees, we celebrate with Christmas cacti and Christmas palms. You do what you gotta do. Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas to you, and I hope you and uh, all of your family have a wonderful time. You do the same. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.